Hi, Jess. Hi, John. How's it going? It's it's going well, yeah. This will probably be our last show for the year, and I'm feeling really good about the start we've gotten. I'm excited to see where this whole project goes in the coming year. A lot of people talk about how December is this time where everyone goes into holiday mode and they're not quite yeah. as productive as throughout the rest of the year. And I feel like December, at least for me personally, has been the opposite of that between this podcast and blog and really getting more into my work with my company. Yeah, you're kind of hitting on all cylinders in a way that you haven't been for a long time. It's true because you only started your job in November, right? Yeah. You really had a ramp up of intensity for yourself. But yeah, no, absolutely. I, I think December for a lot of people is this time of kind of conclusion and winding down. But it doesn't necessarily have to be. Like now, maybe more than ever, I think people's individual schedules are detached from this kind of annual spiraling repetitive circus that we always go through, you know. Yeah. But it is the end of the year, obviously. And I, I know we've talked before about planning and reflections and giving yourself feedback and things like that. Yeah, I was, was going to say, what's your resolution, John? <laughs> Uh, I, I, so I don't, I don't generally jump on the whole resolutions bandwagon. I figured that. That's right. why I wanted to ask it in that way. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Yeah. Resolutions I don't think are hugely useful because of their kind of one-offness, I guess. I, I don't know how to say that properly, but yeah, they're, they're these things that you think, oh, you started the year on a good foot or what have you. But I, I more adhere to a systematic approach, I guess. I think the end of the year is a perfect time to reflect on the year. And it's a perfect time to look at the coming year and kind of pick themes, pick big goals or plans that you want to go over. But that's only because you have to pick some time in the year to do it, or at least the way that I do my planning, I have to, right? <laughs> a few years ago, as we've mentioned before, I started a whole five-year plan, which I've gradually been building up and refining. And every year I have to make a theme and a rough set of goals and plans for the coming year and a year is really too long to plan anything concrete but it gives you the direction that you want to go in right right and so the last few weeks of the year is when i get into putting that together but the most important part of putting that together at least the way i view it is the looking back part right it's looking at this last year that's what i always start with when i'm looking at my plans for the coming year I spend a good chunk of time breaking down the last year and looking at each of my quarterly reviews for the last year, the three that I have done and the one that I'm working on right now, or not really working on right now, but I will be working on in the coming week, and just looking at what did I do well, what didn't I do well, why did those things work well, did I accomplish the things that I wanted to accomplish, if not, why not, you know, all of those sorts of right. questions. Like, you, you can't really figure out what you should change in your life until you figure out what didn't work last time, you know? Yeah. 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 I think for a lot of people, the fact that they make resolutions is a problem in of itself, because what that means is that there are obvious low hanging fruit that they haven't grasped already. If there's easy things that you can do to change your life to improve it, you should just be doing them immediately. Right. Like waiting for the new year to do them is, is a silly kind of thing. But there is that pressure. And maybe it's just because as a society or at least in the United States, it's such a big thing to have the New Year's resolution that at the end of the year, uh, I feel this, okay, well, I have to do an annual review. But I'm thinking my goal setting, because Miami was a whole new chapter, like it started before I got to sure. Miami. And now I'm still working on the same goals. So for me... You do the quarterly review. I do a monthly look at how I'm doing. So I guess I would just sum that up and see, am I still on track? Do I need to adjust anywhere? And then we just keep moving forward and maybe see this year coming up. Are there any goals that I'll be adding? Because obviously I'm hoping to get through all the goals that I'm already talking about or at least make substantial progress so I have more room to add on. Well, and that is a, a key kind of, part of the perspective, right? You were describing it in this as a continual process. Right. And I think that's where a lot of people get lost, that they look at it at the end of the year as kind of a clean break. Do You can start something new, start something fresh. You don't start something new. You don't start something fresh. The reason why I'm doing this now 
and it, this is not the last week of the year. Obviously, listeners can't tell exactly when we're recording, but this is not after Christmas, right? This is a pre-Christmas show. Yeah. And the reason why I do these reflections and these plans now is because anything that I want to start implementing, you have to start implementing before you actually want to do it. Right. Because if I say I want to start on January 1st, I don't know, being a vegan, you can't just start on January 1st and be successful. You have when to you start have cheese and milk in your fridge and all of these Exactly. Yeah, you have to start a couple weeks in advance to start sifting through the things that you need to change and trying to start implementing them. Because you're making any kind of significant change, you will inevitably fail immediately. That's how that works. You step out of the door and you get punched to the face. Right. And then you learn to duck a few times. It's like starting a new video game. You always die immediately <laughs> until you figure out the tricks and how to maneuver a little bit. And so you can't just start on January 1st. You have to start before. And January happens to be a convenient time because people are less busy. You do have a little bit of a break where a lot of people aren't working and things like that. Yeah. There are reasons to do it at this time of year, but... Yeah, it, 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 you really do have to think about it as a continual thing. And that's why I talk about the five-year plan, because this review of the last year and plan for the next year is just part of this continual process. Right. And there are things that I want to change about myself and things that I want to have achieve or be able to do or have produced by the end of my five-year plan. And it's about two years from now. And in order to reach that, this all has to mesh with that direction. If my major goals for this year are not things that I really care about changing in my life long term, it shows me those goals are kind of petty and not important, and I really shouldn't be focused on those. Right. So. Yeah. I have two things before I move to our bigger topic of the day. One right. is that you mentioned video games and how you have to duck under the punch when you, right. the door's trying to hit you the first couple times, and the same with video games. At Thanksgiving, I was with my cousin, who is 17, and okay. my cousin's son, who is 7. My boyfriend was playing the 7-year-old and just got beat again and again and again, and it was <laughs> hilarious because you could tell that he knew the game, he knew when to duck, he knew what was up, and that just made me That's think of it, which was really funny. My last question on it was... When it comes to tracking it, and I know this could be a whole nother topic, but in like an elevator speech of it, what do you do to track it? Are you like in Excel getting metrics or are you writing it in a journal type of thing? What is your method? You mean tracking it so that I can review at the end of like the week and at the end of the quarter and stuff? Yeah, I guess twofold. One, what is your preliminary quarterly review? And then how do you look back at that and then put that into some kind of format so that you can see what you've been doing and where you need to go? Um, so there's a lot to it. It's obviously constantly changing and there are many different kind of moving parts with it. But the actual day-to-day -day tracking, it, more and more, is just being completely funneled through my time tracking. Right, okay. Okay. Yeah. And so like at the beginning of the week, or well, at the end of the week actually, but at the end of the week, I lay out the plans for the next week, and those plans largely consist of specific things that I want to have done by the end of the week and how much time I want to have spent on certain things that don't have clear, completed tasks. Right. So, like, let's say I wanted to finish editing and publishing this podcast, and then I also wanted to spend two hours over the course of the week working out with a kettlebell or I wanted to spend five hours studying Spanish over the course of the week. And then I track that over the course of the week, at the end of the week, I can then look back at my stats from all of my time that's been recorded. Okay. Look at the different things that I wanted to, that I cared about tracking for that week. Right. So and most everything assess. funnels through that, and that's how you get all your Pretty statistics. Much. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, that compounds at the end of the quarter where I can look back over the larger goals and see how that impacted the larger goals. And then you can also look in at trends and things and see what things persisted and changed throughout a quarter or throughout the year. So now I've tracked my time for almost nine months and I can look back and see, okay, well, I was spending, I don't know, 10 hours reading a, a week back in April and that's gradually dwindled down to only like five hours a week. Well, do I really want to get that back up to 10 hours a week? Is that something that now I need to emphasize again, right? So you can look at it on a larger scale 
Um, because on a week to week basis, like I've had some weeks where I basically didn't read at all because I was traveling and I was on the road and I finished with the only book I had with me and I didn't have internet access, or, you know, whatever it is. And so when you just look at one week, you can't necessarily get a good handle. But when you spread that out to the whole quarter or to the whole year, yeah, I start to adjust it. But yeah, it's mostly funneled through my time tracking because that's something that I do automatically and I do all the time. And so I can utilize that to understand if I've attained my goals. And so I've adjusted a lot of my goals and my intentions to be based around time invested as opposed to how often I do something or mm. something particular that's been accomplished. Right. So, yeah. yeah. Okay. What about you? How do you do it? Mine is more that I have for my website and then for just my overall goals. I have an idea of what I want to have accomplished by right now. It's up until March. And so I will need to every month, like I can add on if I need to adjust it. But it was just an overall by March. This is where I would like to be. As you're going to that, because that's a ways away. Mm -hmm. That's three and a half months away. How do you track if you're on progress or how do you get a sense for if you're on progress or keep yourself going, you know? So I, especially with my website, I know that I started with March. I actually started with like a whole year and a half view and I worked backwards that if I was super successful in a year and a half, I would have had to do this and I broke it down by month and I'm having to adjust it as I see the progress I'm making. But for the Mm -hmm. most part, I've been on par with like, okay, I maybe could have pushed myself more, but I think I'm pretty on par with where I need to be. And so I just keep tracking, okay, I've done this. And some of the things that I've added that I need to be hitting are metrics. So I have a spreadsheet and I'll track it that way of, am I doing this? Are they metrics of how much time you spend or how often you do something or what you actually produce? How do you measure those things? They're mostly what I produce. Okay. But I have a certain amount that I have to produce in a month that I felt, not by gauging it based on time, which I know would be a more accurate measurement, but at the same time, I know that these 10 or so things are things that have all these steps and are going to take a lot of action items and be challenging enough that if I can accomplish all of those in my month, I need to just keep referring back to and working on it. Well, and I mean, measuring things by what you produce, I think is actually the ideal. It's just that there are lots of, there are lots of projects that are long term to such an extent that for the first month or two, you won't necessarily produce anything. Right. So it's hard to track with what you produce if you're not producing, or even if you're producing something, you're not finishing something necessarily. Yeah. And the first month or two was like that but now I'm finally starting to publish things and starting to be able to get analytics to use and the same overall with Spanish and with other things in my life that would probably be useful to have a time tracker but at the same time I'm so internally like wow I just spent two hours cleaning what could I do to avoid that next time? Or maybe could I just talk to my roommates about us keeping the place cleaner so that we don't have to have this big thing every week? Right. And this is the thing that I like about time tracking, that you can suddenly see, oh, wow, I spend 14 hours a week cleaning my house. I should really figure out a way to drop that down a little bit. So you, you don't just see on your big projects what's going on. You see where other things are draining your time. Right. But yeah, it's it's a lot of investment to get used to tracking all your time all the time. Right. So. Maybe one day, but not, but not yet, because right now I'm, yeah, that's a, that's another challenge, project challenge, whatever you want to call it, that I can focus on some other time. Yeah, that that doesn't need to be a focus of your time when you need to focus on getting whatever you actually need to get done done. And my system is good enough now that I'm moving forward, so I'm happy with it. After kind of debating between ourselves and with in ourselves, I think, uh, we decided that we wanted to talk about some of the major sexual abuse scandals that have hit in the last few months. I know we mentioned it very briefly last episode mm-hmm. because it just came up in the flow of conversation. But I think it's, and I think we both think, that it's such a huge seismic moment for especially our culture and work and our culture between how men and women interact that I think we kind of need to address it and talk about some of the ways 
we think about it at least. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is that fair? I don't know. <laughs> and yeah, and I mean, you know, something is big and has this kind of propensity to be a seismic shift when your friends get together and everyone starts talking about this kind of thing. Like when my girlfriends last got together over wine, we were just talking about the pros and cons of this and basically having the conversation we're probably going to have on yeah. on what we think, but from our obviously very feminine perspectives. Right, clearly. Yeah. <laughs> the, the perspective of women on this whole thing is bound to be different. And you get a little wine in us and we're really like, we're really going on you're really going after people oh, yeah. yeah i can imagine i can i can only imagine yeah and, and i mean i never imagined that the momentum would carry this far and would that it, the tendrils of this whole thing would spiral out as they have and it does seem a very stark thing how different this is compared to how everyone kind of ignored all of the people accusing trump just, just one year ago, you know what I mean? Like there were lots of people that came out of the world work accusing him of sexual assault and you had the whole tape on the bus and all of that. And the tape on the bus became a big deal, but all of the actual accusations of people directly at him doing things just got blown over. And yet now, if you have some people come out, you get the chop immediately. It's, 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 I've, I can't, and granted, we haven't been alive through, you know, the last 80 years so maybe there have been other moments that have had similar gravitas but i've never seen something take such a 180 in terms of how people react to it and what is considered acceptable i mean not not that the, any of the, of the things that these guys were doing was acceptable but people now like the reactions to something coming out about somebody in terms of everyone around them is so much faster and so much more decisive than it ever would have been previously, which I just find completely fascinating. Yeah, and in my opinion, it comes from multiple factors. One being that we actually, like we've talked about so frequently in other episodes, we do have this technology that you can get access to this information a lot quicker than maybe you have been able to in the past. That also helps people to feel more empowered about, well, there's all these people that know about it, That's it's on such a scale already that if I come out and say something, I'm not as afraid of something horrible happening to me or, you know, losing my reputation over this. It's more, okay, well, all these other people are doing it and there's enough weight around it in terms of conversation that I feel more empowered to do it. Yeah, there definitely are some strength in numbers that people coming out probably feel but i i think it's also important to recognize the fact that what you were talking about in terms of people having easy access and the power kind of of the internet is also important in that the downside and the consequences for the people coming out are not necessarily smaller because they could also get attacked online in the same way so they could be personally assaulted in the same way all of the accusers of these people but the power of the people being attacked I think is ever shrinking and it's notable that almost all of these people come from three particular industries and they're unusual industries in part because of the fame that people get by being a part of these industries, but they're also unusual industries because the primary thing that differentiates them from every other industry is that the people with power in those industries controlled distribution. Mm -hmm. And I know that might start to sound a bit archaic, but I think the key is when you're looking at the power of the internet and especially the power of mobile phone technology, camera technology, things like that, you see people being able to film things for YouTube. You see people being able to produce podcasts. You see people being able to do a lot of things like this that wouldn't have been possible at the quality level that it is now 10 years ago and so you see movies and the people producing movies well that's no longer as solidly important people can leave and go compete and produce things online so even if they get like completely pushed out you know by harvey weinstein or something like that they get pushed out so that they can't be in a movie well now 
they can go online and be on YouTube or they can be in a lot of the different indie movies. Like, Right. It's not so think, centralized. So they still have a lot of power, the guys in industry, but there's so many other people with power that it's not. Right. And the, and the concentration of authority and the concentration of distribution powers has been greatly diminished because even things like newspapers and like TV news, they are no longer being distributed in the way that they used to be. The You don't have the same power of the gatekeepers that you used to. Mm -hmm. And so what you've had is a shift from the gatekeepers of distribution having power to the producers of content having power. Right. And so now the personalities have much more power. The entertainers have much more power. And it's not the producers. So it's not Harvey Weinstein who can say, oh, you can be in this movie. It's now the actual movie stars or it's now the actual writers of the material because they can go into alternative medias, new media, and compete in a very real way. And, and that's that's kind of a side point, I guess. But even with that shift in power, it's fascinating to me how quickly what is kind of permitted has changed, what is kind of just hushed up has changed. And I was wondering, do you think this whole thing is kind of a momentary thing that's just going to pass? Or do you think this is really a shift in our culture? Because we've seen other things, like the whole Bill Clinton sex scandal. We've seen things like corruption that have come, and then they go away, but the corruption still comes back, or it's still there. Like People know that it's wrong, but it still persists. Do you yeah. think this is the sort of thing that's going to like really shift and beat these sorts of t terrible acts out of our culture? Or do you think it's just going to kind of go back under the curtain once this all blows over? So... I would love to say that I think that this is going to be this massive shift for society and that will move us in a, in a forward direction. And I do think that it will move us forward for sure. It's not going to, it's not going to be a bad thing to have all of this come out, but sure, I yeah. think because we are human and there's always going to be tendencies for these things, just the same that you mentioned the corruption analogy and how there's always going to be corruption to a certain degree, you can see some of it and say, okay, well, that didn't work well. Let's put in these practices so that it's a little bit more clear how we can avoid it. And I think that's where we're probably going with this. And I think there will be a lot more criticism to anyone who is even close to this. And anytime someone says something happened, it's going to raise a much bigger flag for any company of any size because they know yeah. the weight it carries. Yeah. I think that that starts to be the key because I think the parallels with the civil rights movement and mm -hmm. the 1960s are strong here. I, I think that yeah, for sure. at that time, people understood that racism wasn't good. I think that was broadly understood by the public. And yeah, certainly you might have had certain pockets or certain towns where racism was just broadly accepted. But most people didn't think racism was good. But at the same time, if people were racist, everybody just kind of ignored it. You know what I mean? Like they, they were just kind of moved around it, moved away from it. They were like, we're not going to deal with this. And I think that that's a similar thing to a lot of these sexual things. Like I've had people that I worked with who have done things that I viewed as inappropriate. And I mean, I'm almost kind of lucky in this whole thing because I've always been so uncomfortable with unclear boundaries that it just like it it just makes me extremely uncomfortable. I don't know why it makes me extremely uncomfortable, but it always has. Like we talked about on the last episode, your example of our meeting in Korea and other friends meeting and how the minute you knew, okay, we're friends, everything is like, all right, I know where the lines are and I'm totally good moving forward right. in this relationship. Exactly. And that is just so much easier for me because the thought of like, oh, you're going to go meet up with your friend and hang out, but maybe you'll fool around or like, oh, you make out with your friend. Like that just makes me extremely uncomfortable. <laughs> And and that's that's kind of, I mean, uh, as it should, in my opinion. But. No, but like, I mean, we both know lots of people who have hooked up with their friends or made out with their friends. Yeah. Like those lines are not always crystal clear in normal society. And it's not necessarily a hugely inappropriate thing if two friends in college make out. Like that's a thing that happens and right. is perfectly fine. But I've never 
had that sort of thing because it's just it, I get uncomfortable. So I'm very clear when I ask somebody out. And so I, that's why. Talking. Yeah, and that's why you said you're lucky, lucky in a way, and I'm lucky in air quotes right. that this works perfectly for your personality of how you like relationships to go. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. 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 Like I, I remember people talking about oh going on dates with multiple people and i always thought it was insane because i'm like that seems so stressful and confusing. <laughs> anyway that's all put put that to the side i have worked with people and i knew people in high school who would make sexual jokes i remember i worked at a real estate firm well not really real estate a mortgage firm for a while and i knew guys in their 40s and 50s who would kind of make a bit off-color sexual jokes or things like that you know what i mean and i was uncomfortable with those sorts of things i can just imagine how the women felt but I, I guess I'm bringing this up because I think there is a gray area that has existed for a long time mm-hmm. where a lot of guys, especially older guys in their, well, not really older, but in their 40s and 50s have thought, okay, there are some guys who make off-color comments or do off-color things, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And they were just kind of accepted before. And I think that now other people in the workplace will not accept those things. Other men will not accept those things in the way that they did before. Yeah, and, and I, I think, think... Yeah, my... Because a lot of the things... Sorry, not to, to cut you off, but a lot of the things that have happened have been, like, obviously wrong. Everybody understood before this that raping people was wrong, right? Like, some of the stuff Harvey Weinstein was, is accused of, like, that stuff, that, that was not debatable. That No one was confused about that. But there are other things that people did that I think before, if you asked people... There would have been a chunk of the population that said, okay, you shouldn't do that, but I'm not going to fire somebody for doing that. And now those gray area type things are much more likely to be called out and much more likely to result in people telling them. Because I think a lot of these guys, like some of the guys that I worked with who I thought were inappropriate, I thought that because I was younger and had a different cultural, I came into the world in a different time, right? And I think that they weren't even necessarily aware that what they were doing was wrong or made people uncomfortable. You know what I mean? Like there are certain things that they would make. They're just like, oh, I'm just being funny or I'm complimenting her or something like that. It's making everyone uncomfortable, but a woman's not necessarily going to want to talk to him about it. That's uncomfortable to try to talk to him about it. Another guy doesn't want to bring this up because the whole thing's uncomfortable. So nobody ever necessarily tells him. And now with it all being so public and coming out, I think some of those people that operated in the gray area will now understand how to just be better people with other people, especially in the workplace. So, yeah, yeah I, I think in that way it will clarify some lines and push people into a better situation. Just like after the 60s, no one accepted like racial comments or comments with racial undertones. At that point, it was understood that that was no longer acceptable in any way, in any situation. And I think that we're moving toward that with this whole thing. I, I agree, and I think that's a very good point. But my, my question on this is where, where, especially from an age perspective, if you go back to what you're talking about with the 60s and the civil rights movement, where is the yeah. line? Because you see, even today, there's still parts of both of those movements that are trying to gain ground on certain levels. Like, for example, take someone who is in their 80s and was raised incredibly racist and, yeah, in closed doors in his own home, he's still probably going to be racist. And out in public, he's maybe a smidge, but people just, because he's old, (laughs) because he's an older gentleman, they just say, well this guy was raised that way and you can't change him and he doesn't mean anything by it. And like, I hear that sometimes, but if you go back, like if you uh, parallel it to the same thing we're talking about, that's my question, I guess, is will it, will there be a point where that gray area, people are starting to understand if you're in your fifties and you're making this comment at work, yes, that's no longer acceptable. But if you've always done it this way and you're in your eighties, are you just in that area where it's just okay because, and I guess that's where it's different. Maybe not. I don't think it well, should be, but. You and I probably have considerably different perspectives on the whole race <laughs> thing because you grew up in the South. And so there are elements of people that exist in the South still, especially the elderly, who would have grown up in a very, very different society. Whereas I grew up in Southern California where that has not been prevalent in any 
real way uh, True. even you know before the civil rights movement and so yeah you you probably have a slightly different perspective and even the, the true... east coast in general i think even if you go okay. to new york the examples that i'm thinking of largely live in just rural areas of the north as sure. well yeah yeah and so yeah I, I might be singling out the south a little bit but yeah much, that's but... just a caveat because i know that i'm from the south and so i see a lot of that there but now i find people are used to being around each other more that you'll see more of mixed communities here versus the north but that's a yeah, whole okay. that's a whole nother thing that i realized when i was traveling around the states for my other job i was like wow i didn't realize the difference i think that one of the things that you said was an important point what you said was behind closed doors maybe he's still super racist but out in public maybe it just comes through in undertones sometimes what that tells you is that he is aware that in polite society that is not acceptable. Mm, mm-hmm. And I think that awareness is key, that even the most racist people are very much aware that that is not acceptable in public, that is not acceptable in polite society. And before this whole wave of this last year, I don't think that all men necessarily understood that these sorts of derogatory or not even derogatory but like just sexually charged and inappropriate conversation inappropriate actions of a sexual nature were necessarily unacceptable in public or unacceptable in polite society and i think that the the simple recognition of that and the fact that most people understand that is a major step forward because that means that if somebody says something in polite society everyone else now can say that's not acceptable and will say that's not acceptable like if somebody comes out in public and just starts saying a whole bunch of racist stuff they're going to get a huge reaction from everybody around them and that was not the case with these sorts of sexual things and i think that going forward that will more be the case i also think that with the elderly holding on to these sorts of things that's less of an issue with the whole sexual thing because i think Mm, yeah they're not in the workplace and they were raised differently when it comes to that. Maybe not totally, but there's just a different outlook in some respects. Right. That That's a good point. I, I do think there's a particular generation, like not that this didn't exist in long ago generations, uh, these sorts of sexual abuses, but I think there is a particular generation that came about from the 1960s when free love type things started and the breakdown of the necessity of marriage and things like that started. So you had that moral shift away from needing to be married and that having that propriety. And at the same time, you still had the power dynamics and the misogyny and mm-hmm. the yeah, that's a good things point that too. kind of placed men above women at that time. And so people growing up in that particular period, I think, were probably more susceptible to these sorts of things. But again, once they leave the workplace, like I think this really matters in the context of work much more than it does in anything else. Yeah, and I think before we switch over to work, one thing this has made me think about a lot is we're talking a lot about news and how that has started to change our perspective. But when I think about just what you were saying, that in your workplace you've heard people say things before that made you uncomfortable. And now I think back to even time in college when there were phrases and innuendos that... Yeah, it made me very uncomfortable, but because this wasn't an elevated conversation, it was just kind of a, like, I'm just going to brush it off, and yeah, I'm very, very uncomfortable, maybe even visibly if right. you saw my face, but I'm just going to walk away, or I'm just going to be like, screw you and walk away, but it, it's almost making light of it, because they think it's funny, but really, I'm uncomfortable, but I never thought right. about that, which is part of the problem, that I'm glad this is shifting it. Right. And I think it's important to recognize they might not even understand that that's uncomfortable <laughs> if they're not very perceptive. or And most of them are not. Yeah, like, <laughs> and because people would have just brushed it off before, that's that's a real issue. Like I knew people in high school and college, like I witnessed people just like slapping girls' butts and things like that. Like I would see the girl be uncomfortable, like not girls that they're with. And I would see the guy kind of think it was okay and just be like this is weird and I'm uncomfortable and those are the kind of like cross boundary things that I was telling you about where like they're friends kind of and they're doing like it just the whole thing always made me uncomfortable but I I think that those sorts of things will be less acceptable which is yeah good. and there will always be a gray area the same way as if someone says a racial slur there's a gray area depending on your relationship but for the most part it's still 
very frowned upon, it's going to be a similar thing that there will be a gray area based on your relationship. But yeah, there's certain things that just aren't acceptable. But now we're getting into what is that? Yeah, because this does start to get much more complicated than racial issues because racial issues, there are things that are clearly negative that you can say. And they're negative. There's no ambiguity about them being negative. Mm-hmm. But what we're looking at with a lot of these things, in, in terms of the statements instead of the actual like physical actions, right? The physical actions are pretty clear, I think. But the statements the guys might make, like giving girls compliments or things like that, they could, in certain contexts, be perceived as positive, right? They could be perceived as complimentary. And so it's a much more difficult thing to adjudicate because... It's ostensibly a positive thing that is inappropriate and uncomfortable. So it's not really a positive thing. Whereas the racial things, they're pretty clearly negative if you're making you know, racial slurs at people. Yeah, absolutely. And that yeah. makes me think a lot about just living, living in Miami and the culture of Miami and how romanticized that culture can be and how that mm. plays a lot into the way... The way everyone talks, even sometimes the way the women talk. How do you mean? It is just a more sexually charged way of communicating. Uh, And it's the lines, there's so much more bleed than it would be in like North Carolina kind of thing. Right. It's a less stuffy culture in certain respects. (laughs) Thanks, John. (laughs) I mean, but like, you know what I mean? Like the old Puritan Protestant type. Yes, yes concept still persists in certain ways in a lot of the northeast in particular but in parts of the south right and latin cultures like i knew this back living in la the culture of some of the people that i knew in like my church was going to be a little bit more conservative a little bit more stuffy a little bit more boys and girls don't hang out as much than it was with my like hispanic friends they were just much more comfortable with those sorts of things right yeah Um, So I can understand that. And yeah, and this is where it's difficult. When you're thinking about this, like I know we talked about us a little bit. Did we we talk about how it would have been weird if one of us had made a move on each other in the last episode? We... Or did we talk about that after? We might have talked about it after. Okay, yeah. Because when we were first working together in Korea, we had obviously met kind of at a work function. We were both getting trained together. And we were then socially friends. Mm Mm-hmm. And then we start collaborating together on this sort of thing, right? And that's the sort of complicated situation, especially working kind of as a freelancer or as somebody who is doing their own thing, working outside of a corporate structure. It's the kind of thing where suddenly that could become very ambiguous because I think if one of us at that time had asked the other one out, I think that would have been a reasonable thing for the person to do. At the same time, I would have been super uncomfortable and then working would have been really complicated, especially if the <laughs> other person rejected the other person. And right? also super uncomfortable. For, yeah. Right. And, and so like for you and the way you think about these things, where are the boundaries of doing something with work? Because a lot of people meet their wives or their husbands at work. A lot of people, like that's where they spend the majority of their waking hours or a large portion of their waking hours. How do you think that changes going forward? Mm. Well, okay. First, I'll say my my personal perspective on this, and then I'll say how I think it will change going forward. But for okay. for my personal perspective, it's always been, and I understand that you can meet your future significant other at work, but work needs to be work and. If, okay. <laughs> and if I'm, if, you know, if, if I'm trying to work and I have the person coming around and wanting to talk to me or I'm just distracted, that's one going to affect my work, but also it's just sure. going to make the office community more complicated. And I don't want to have to deal with the dramatics of the office because unless things are very cut and dry, who knows what else is going on in this office dynamic. So I've always just put myself on the outside of that and if anything was starting to transpire i was like okay look i don't do work things so yeah that's reasonable for me too like i mean obviously as we've said i'm very uncomfortable with confusing situations and i don't think i could ever deal with the consequences of being rejected by somebody that i had to work with every day so (laughs) i would never ask someone out that i worked with every day because 
that would just make everything incredibly uncomfortable. Unless I already knew it was completely a sure thing and I was into her and she had already basically told me, hey, why don't you ask me out? Then maybe I'd be like, okay, sure. <laughs> but uh, yeah, like the, I think you're right. The complications of it are way too much. Yeah. So how do you think it's going to change? Changing work in the future? Yeah. At least my hope and what I truly do think based on what has transpired is that there will always be gray area but now anything that used to just be in some people's minds obviously not in women's minds like myself who already felt uncomfortable with even the sexual innuendo jokes but it will become okay well doing anything in this category or in this realm of things is just not okay and people will as you were saying be more vocal about it but also i think hr policies may change to be more clearly written out in terms of if this happens here's the consequence there's no room and especially if well, we already have evidence at a lot of big and, companies yeah well at a lot of big companies they already prevent people from dating coworkers or you know going out with coworkers like there are a number of policies where if you happen to get together or you get married or something one of you has to quit you know what i mean so like that sort of thing already exists which i kind of i think that that's a problematic policy to have because I mean, if you happen to meet somebody and get married to somebody that you work with, I don't think that that's necessarily a detrimental thing in the company. Anyway, I I don't think that's universally bad. Yeah, but I I do understand where they're coming from that so many people meet their significant other at work that they're trying to keep it from being a big dating scene at work all the time. And I I get where they're going with that, but maybe it's just the way they handle the policy. Yeah, yeah, I I don't know. I'm conflicted about that whole thing because you're right. I think when you start having a lot of dating happening, it does start to compromise the professionalism or it has a potential to compromise the professionalism of the people in the organization and the way that they're operating with one another. But how do you, to go to an even more kind of gray part of this, how do you feel about this with regard to networking or meeting people at conferences and things? Because obviously we've both been to a number of conferences. People at conferences, you don't work with them. A lot of people are drinking, they're eating. It's kind of like a party to a certain extent, kind of, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Like it's it's kind of a social gathering. I struggle with this a good amount still. <laughs> and we talked about this before with me moving here where I was very, not confused necessarily, but I didn't know what the cultural mores and the cultural norms were. When I meet somebody at a networking event or something, can I invite them to go hang out with me? Can I invite them to go for a beer? And I'm talking about like meeting other guys just to... can can we be friends or is this only professional i don't know where this stands right right and for actually striking up a relationship or dating or something like that like that's even more complicated yeah i I don't know where i stand yeah i've i've always struggled with this to a certain extent because when i'm saying networking i'm not just talking strictly professional but even as we are talking about you move to a new city you want to make friends you're obviously open to meeting friends that are female and male and especially if you can't automatically say I have a boyfriend or I have a girlfriend yeah in this in this case it's been nice it's been kind of like my nice coat of armor that I don't have to worry about it when I say it I just say it kind of early to make sure I I put throw that caveat in there but having a significant other makes a lot of things simpler that's true yeah but before it was always when you're moving and you're trying to meet people you're saying this and you're keep emphasizing, kind of going, yeah, I'm looking for friends. Because what? You just automatically say, this is what I want to happen. Because that just that just puts this strict, I don't know, wall almost to some people. They're like, that was really awkward to throw out really early. Right. It does start to be <laughs> awkward. Yeah, it's true. But it's so true. so I haven't I haven't found the right way to approach it yet. Besides, at conferences, it tends to be easier because you're... You're talking about all these issues and like-minded things. And for me, I have to make a decision, especially when a night is about to unfold. Okay, they're all going out drinking and there's this crew and I'm seeing these mannerisms. Like, do I want to stay with this crew or do I maybe want to remove myself? And you have to choose between going out and doing this networking that you know happens best when you're all drinking together, but also... 
It's when you make your deep connections. Exactly. Yeah. But, but the professionalism too, like how much do I want and what kind of connection is this for me? And you have to kind of evaluate it. Yeah. And it's even more difficult when you're working for yourself or you're, you're working on projects by yourself or only with collaborators that you're actually choosing. Because if you're at a conference kind of representing your company or you're at a conference to learn about an industry that you are actively working in within a corporation, it's different than when a lot of your work is with people who you are friends with. Like you and I started working together, but I think we're probably friends before we are collaborators, right? Mm -hmm. And when you start to have a lot of the people that you're working with be your friends and then like some people might start dating people that they're working with or dating people who are their friend. Like it, it, that sort of thing becomes difficult to navigate because just talking about the professionalism side, taking aside the whole like sexual side of it or the whole dating side of it, the romantic side of it, it's hard for me to disentangle what is acceptable socially versus professionally when you're working with someone who you're good friends with. Oh, absolutely. And one of my close friends used to tell a, a little bit of the story of when we started working together, she was working on a lot of the projects that I was giving her. And that was just yeah. the hierarchy of the organization at the time. And right. granted, this might not be the best approach. I have people who really don't think this approach is correct, but this is just okay. how I approached it. Uh -huh. I didn't want us to get too friendly to the point where if I gave her work or had to criticize or something that it was like too friendly of a relationship that she wouldn't take it correctly or she wouldn't understand that she this is still a deadline. Yes, yeah, she wouldn't take it seriously. Exactly. This is still yeah. a deadline or anything like that. And obviously we eventually got through it and she's now one of my closest friends from work. But she mm. has said the same thing to me as she's taking on this role now and going, wow, I understand why you did that. Because I went yeah. a little bit the other way and I'm very glad I did. And I see the the pros and going the way I went with becoming friends and just continuing to communicate about it. But I understand why you drew that line because it just made it easier for you to do your job. <laughs> yeah, you're right. The, you, you run into this a lot when you have two people working on the same level who are close and then one of them gets a promotion over the other one mm -hmm. that suddenly all of the dynamics of the relationship start to change. And that's to a certain extent necessitated, I think, in a lot of circumstances, as you were describing, because you have to make sure that they're taking you seriously because the things that you're telling them now have more weight. Mm -hmm. And so you need to make sure that they feel that they have more weight because if you don't, then they won't do the things that you need them to do. Absolutely. So, so yeah, and same on the flip side. When you're yeah. when you're under in the hierarchy, you also have to understand there is this hierarchy, whether you like it or not, that this person right. has all this experience and I need to be respectful of how much they put in. The same reason you always say chef to a chef because they put in all this work and you want to make sure. sure you're respecting. Yeah. But this this is difficult, I think. Mm -hmm. I it is. I, I, it I, is. I struggle with this. But this is why I like to formalize things and to be as clear and direct with the way you're communicating as possible. Because if everybody knows what their responsibility is and everyone is communicating feedback clearly, then you should eliminate most problems. Right. The expectations should be set that everyone takes everyone else that they're working with seriously. Mm -hmm. And like that's how I've tried to set things up as I work with people in like one-on-one -on -one collaborations or, you know, in freelance type situations, mm -hmm. because as long as you both take each other very seriously and you treat the other person kind of like a customer, the high level of respect that you're both showing each other keeps you from having to worry about, oh, they're not taking me seriously or, oh, they're not doing what I need them to do. Right. The problem is if one person starts to fall off with those sorts of things, then you and yeah, it, it becomes it becomes very complicated quickly. Yeah. And especially in a and I'm talking from the perspective of my old corporate workplace. That's where I've always been more guarded and seen the sure. value in some of the hierarchy, because as long as you do have that communication on respect, it's one thing, but you're still somewhere in the totem pole getting your line from your boss and unfortunately it's not as much about production all the time and especially in a lot of corporate environments so you're having to yeah. make sure that you can tell this boss that you have something so it's just that chain of delegation that you have to make sure this sure. person is respecting that you have an authority figure and we need to work together towards this well but you're right i think hierarchy is valuable 
Because in, in a lot of situations, what it does is it provides everybody involved kind of an objective reality mm-hmm. that you can argue about or you can say, oh, well, it's artificial or it's stupid or they shouldn't be in that position or something like that. But at the end of the day, everyone can look at the hierarchy and say, this is who's in charge. This is who's not in charge. This is who has this responsibility. This is who has that responsibility. Mm-hmm. And having it formalized and clarified removes the ambiguity that you automatically have when you're working with people in kind of unspecified roles and unspecified situations. Because when you have something that's unspecified, either one person takes it on when they shouldn't necessarily be taking it on, Mm -hmm. and then that creates resentments, and that causes the other person that's not taking it on to depend on this person without providing them proper appreciation. Or you get the situation where nobody does it, and then things that need to get done just don't get done. And then things fall through the cracks. And neither of those situations is good. So hierarchy can be valuable. But yeah, all of those gray zones around what is acceptable in a relationship, both romantic and friendly in a professional setting, just gets more and more complicated the less formal the organization is. (laughs) And yeah, I I struggle with it a lot. (laughs) Well, I mean, it doesn't, I don't actually really struggle with it a lot. But when I think about it, I don't have good answers for it, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Right. And I don't actually have any problems with these things. And when you brought this up, Originally, I was thinking, wow, I've always been, I think, pretty decent at setting clear boundaries or expectations, formalizing the way the relationship is. But then I think about it and I'm like, well, not necessarily because I always think things are pretty formalized. Then I realized Mm. that even sometimes when you've explicitly communicated it, it just doesn't sink in. And so that's where I struggle with. At what point do you formalize it to not be awkward in any relationship, whether it's a friendship or whether it's a professional? And then is it sinking in or what do you do if it's not? Like, do you just cut ties? Is this a valuable relationship? Yeah, of course. That's a cost-benefit analysis that's rather difficult. Um, And obviously I side, I lean toward the side of, overly formalizing relationships and having to be overly clear, which is sometimes awkward and uncomfortable. But I understand what you mean. Like what you're saying about the communication and it not necessarily sinking in is another important point. And that's something I actually want to have a whole show about. <laughs> okay. Not not that, but, that but, nugget necessarily. But the, but yeah, the nugget, the cliff notes of this part is... <laughs> the, the cliff notes is essentially like communication is extremely important. And what you're saying matters much, much less than what the other person is understanding and it it is a very complicated art to figure out how to assess whether or not somebody else is understanding. Mm-hmm. And this is something that I think a lot of teachers take a long time to learn. And most other people don't learn ever. This is why I think most parents communicating with their children don't realize that their children don't get what they're saying. They don't get why they're saying it. And this is why I think people don't follow the orders of their bosses. This is why people get mad at their spouses and things. This is why children disobey their parents. It's because they don't understand what the other person's saying, or they don't understand why the other person is saying it. And yet, there's a nod going on on the other side, and you're going, and right. you're going, oh, it's clear, and nope, nothing is, yeah. nothing is. But clear. but it's it's it is a really important idea to understand that you understand what you're saying, but there's a whole lot that can be lost in translation from your mouth to their ears, because either you're not saying it very clearly or they're not understanding it very clearly, or there's some ambiguity in some of the words, or, or whatever it is. And yeah, so th- this is very, that's, that is a whole big thing in terms of communicating yeah, and how you communicate. That we should people. do an episode on because I've been experiencing this in many facets of my life lately, just in small doses, but you just realize I'm being back in a different, a very different work environment than before yeah. and realizing okay, I just said this, but obviously this didn't come across because now we're going in this direction. I thought we were going in this other direction. And and across cultures, this is a huge thing. This is is a much, much more (laughs) difficult thing. And we've dealt with that in Korea, you traveling all around in Latin America when I'm now living in Ireland, lived in France. (laughs) Like going across cultures and not even just across like national cultures or I guess core culture, not not even like, oh, who you are as an American or something, but your corporate culture or your company culture or your group culture. I can't tell you how many times I've stepped into a social group because one of my friends invited me to something and they all have a certain dynamic. They all know what's acceptable and you have to spend hours or days <laughs> learning 
Yeah. Okay, well, this this sort of joke is acceptable in this group. This sort of joke is not acceptable. And that's because whenever you step into a new situation, a new culture, you're dealing with new people, you have to learn all of the social norms, all of the expectations, mm -hmm. because those social norms and expectations shape what you're saying. And I like to think about, and this is just my, my last thought on this whole thing, I like to think about communicating kind of like you're pouring water and the water is always the same, right? Whatever you're trying to communicate is the water mm -hmm. and that doesn't change. But what matters with the water is what you're pouring it into because it completely changes the shape of the water, right? The, yeah. the amount of water and what the water is is the same. But if you pour it into a bowl versus you pour it into a cup versus you pour it into a river, it completely changes what shape it takes on and, exactly. and how it, it hits, how it how how hits the glass or how it yes, hits the whatever. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not a perfect analogy. That's actually a rather poor analogy. But <laughs> It's, but I, I, I enjoyed it on this end, okay? <laughs> okay, I'm glad, yeah. But I think the point is that you don't control it. That's, that's the point. Right. You don't necessarily control it, and so you have to think it three layers deeper than you think you should have to. Yeah. Right. And also something that I've been realizing more and more as I'm starting to work on this understanding end of communication is just repeating it back, really making sure that, okay, yes. this is exactly what you said. Let's just say it two more times, make sure we're on the same page, and you'll see that there might be some little nuggets that just are going to throw you off course. That's extremely useful as a teaching mechanism and as a comprehension checking mechanism. Yeah, Having someone repeat it or repeating it yourself to make sure that you're clear on everything. You're right. That's That is a, an important one to start at the basic level of communicating, get someone to repeat something. Yeah, so I don't have necessarily a whole lot of takeaways from these whole things. I will just say that with all of these sexual abuse scandals, I think they are the biggest change probably this decade for the United States and the Western world because this stuff is reaching out well past the United States. That's what I was going to ask you is how much do you feel being in Ireland right now, the impact of this news? I know you're still connected to u.s news but right do you see it having a big impact there well most of the media i consume is from the uk oh okay and yes it is having a huge impact here in ireland and in the uk in the uk you've got a number of mm -hmm. members of parliament being investigated there's a whole lot of stuff talking about completely restructuring the hiring processes and oh, a lot of okay. the business practices of parliament in the uk You've had some government officials in Ireland face some serious issues, uh, I guess, to just leave it at that. I don't like getting into all the specifics of it because a lot of these things aren't necessarily confirmed anyway. You know what I mean? Like, And we're talking about are, more of what's happening from a societal perspective. Exactly. And, and so many of these things, like, we know that things happened, but I, I think you should always side on the, well, if these things are going to go through court or something like that, let them go through court and don't start talking about all of the accusations as though they're fact because some of them will be fact and some of them probably won't be fact and you just have to get them all and sorted. some of them are the gray area that i think is becoming more of the conversation on what is acceptable and what is not because some exactly. of these you just we just have never had a parameter for it before and now we need to yeah. quickly come up with one yeah but but suffice it to say that this this issue has spread in a dramatic way throughout the english-speaking world i don't think it has had the same impact in places like Germany and France and Japan and other, other places. I'm not sure why that is, but I think just maybe... Like, I don't think it's that these things don't happen there. I just think that the social norms around all of these sorts of things are very different. Mm. The English-speaking world, while we have different cultures, there is a certain closeness of our cultures, a certain closeness of what is acceptable in the working space. Mm -hmm. And those are quite different in France. Those are quite different in you know Spain and some other countries. And so, yeah, I, I don't think that it it has had the ramifications in those countries in the same way. But yeah, no, it's definitely much bigger than the U.S. now. Okay. That's what makes it very interesting that you do have all these ecosystems of different cultures that you were saying the French maybe do things differently, the Japanese maybe do things differently. But America as a whole has all these little communities that also do things differently. Well, and I mean, there are cultural norms that are American that I think are pervasive. Mm. To give an example of how this is very different from like France, the last French president who just left office 
I don't know, a few months ago, mm-hmm. well, like six months ago or whatever it was. He had this whole saga where he left his wife for his mistress and then he left that mistress for another mistress. And then like this was while he was president and he was caught like on a motorcycle or on a scooter leaving one of his mistress's house. And like like it was this whole big thing. He was going to move out of the French White House, the Elysee Palace to go live with his mistress. Like it was this huge thing. He didn't feel the need to resign. This was all out in public and like people were talking about it, but nobody was particularly upset about it. That's of thing would not fly in the united states you're just cheating on your wife with other people and you're just leaving and you're just like, like those sorts of things are much more culturally acceptable in france than they would be with us yeah it's, it's it's just a different world out there yeah so, that that is true yeah i mean and and so with this whole thing i don't know but i think it is a good thing not that these things happened but that they've come to light because most of these things happened you know over the course of the last few decades it's not like this all happened this year and so i think Yeah, we're moving forward. Right. It is progress. There were many different catalysts, which as a female, I'm very excited about us moving in the direction where it's no longer as acceptable. Yeah. And just, I mean, having things like this out in the light and bringing more clarity to relationships and making it clearer for everyone, it makes things easier and makes everything function in a smoother way. You remove a lot of ambiguity. It makes everybody happier and it eliminates all of this uncomfortable terrible stuff (laughs) yeah so anyway i'm glad we're moving forward with the whole thing i'm glad that the the responses to this have been the way they have been Mm -hmm. yeah and i just hope that people don't start going the same route as some of the other other pieces of news that are out there that are just continuing to circulate and get people off topic to the bigger issue that we're trying to resolve of this actually being an issue and you know desensitizing us to it almost i hope we continue to move forward in realizing this is an actual problem yeah well and I, I think we have in a way that a lot of things with politics in the last two or three years a lot of people have gotten desensitized to a lot of things but this has brought out a fire in the public and has caused a serious reaction that i think is is healthy yeah. But you want to wrap this one up, Jess? Yes. <laughs> Close this one down. It's been it's gone a bit long, you know. Oh, okay. <laughs> no, it's fine. I like it's. I think we're about right. But okay, uh, you guys can find our show notes on subjectradio.com/ntl/007. And so I guess we'll see you next year. This will probably come out in January anyway. So we'll see you, know. you in 2018. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I'll talk. To, I'll talk to you in 2018, Jess. Have a good one. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Happy holidays. Yeah, happy holidays. Bye. Bye.